always, it's such a blessing and privilege to gather and worship. I'm so glad you're here. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 16. Today we're going to finish this significant chapter. And this theme, take up your cross. What does it mean to be a genuine, a true believer? What does it mean to be a true Christian? Of course, we saw in the prior section, it begins with a proper confession, believing and professing the truth of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't end there, does it? It is then about being a disciple, denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following after Jesus. Today we're going to answer the question, why? And the answer is of eternal value for your life. This is the life of the cross. Let's read this entire section here together, verses 21 to 28 of Matthew 16. Follow along as I read aloud. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. This is the Word of God. A single Bitcoin in the year 2009 was worth eight one-hundredths of a cent. By the end of 2010, it was worth a hundred times as much, eight cents. For a single Bitcoin. Today, a single Bitcoin is worth around $60,000, last I checked. So, if you had invested just $100 in Bitcoin at the beginning of 2009, at the end of 2010, you'd have had around $10,000. If you'd hung on to that investment until today, you would be worth a staggering $7.5 billion. I know those of us who have watched this thing happen with Bitcoin and all these digital coins. You wish that you could go back in time and convince your 2009 self to invest in digital coinage or digital currency. Well, today I want to tell you about an investment infinitely times more valuable than that. The fact of the matter is, if you die with 7.5 billion or 75 billion or 750 billion, it's meaningless and useless when it comes to your afterlife, when it comes to your eternal existence. I can't help but think about the rich man in Jesus' story when uh, he told about the rich man in Lazarus. The rich man knows he's, he's in hell, he's burning, he can't go back and tell his old self. He can't make demands, so he calls upon God, he asks God to go back to his 
family and let them know to make the right investment. Well, in this final moment or movement of chapter 16, Jesus is giving us an argument why we should make the investment of following after Him. Why should we profess the truth of Christ, and then why should we follow up with repentance and following after Jesus Christ? And here Jesus gives us three valuable, compelling reasons to be a disciple of Him. There's no doubt in my mind that there are some of you here today, maybe some of you watching, and maybe intellectually you've profess Christ, maybe you profess Christ in your emotions, you emotionally sort of affirm the truths of Christ, but if someone were to look at your life, they could not define you as a Christ follower at all. There's really no signs of life when it comes to you following after Jesus Christ. You've never become an acolyte, what we talked about last time, an acolyte of Jesus. You've never finally said, even if it means sickness, even if it means death, even if it means martyrdom, I'm going to follow Christ. So we have an opportunity today to hear essentially from the grave. It's like Jacob Marley coming back to us and telling us to settle our accounts, to deal business with God. It's your future self essentially coming back from the grave and telling you, Become a true follower of Jesus. The investment is worth it. The small price you pay on earth is worth it, not only on earth, by the way, but also especially for eternity. For those of us who are believers, this is also amazingly applicable because it reminds us throughout our lives, we come again and again to Scripture, and it reminds us uh, that it's worth it to battle against sin. It's worth it to deny ourselves. It's worth it to fight temptation. We need that constant encouragement. We need that constant reminder that no sacrifice is too small in order to follow Jesus. You're in the battle of sin. You're struggling against temptation. You're in the valley of decision, perhaps, the valley of hardship even. Don't be faint-hearted. There's no price too big to pay for your soul. Don't be faint-hearted. Take up your cross. Fight the good fight. Why? Well, Jesus gives us three reasons here. What are these reasons? Look at verse 25. The first reason is given there. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The first reason to follow Christ, the best way I could put it is this, conventional wisdom. It's just the wise thing to do. It's street smarts. It's just plain wise. It's making an observation of life and drawing a conclusion. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. I don't think he's going to, in a couple verses, get toward judgment at the end of time and what's going to happen in eternity, but I think he's just making an observation of life, uh, uh, really giving us a, a repeat of a proverb. Now, there's two parts of this observation. The first part is that those who live for themselves end up with terribly corrupt and sad lives. Often these lives end early and end abruptly. How many times do we see the lifestyles of the rich and famous and we're drawn in and enamored by all the things they have and the seemingly beautiful family and all the perfection they have in their homes, and yet behind that is lurking sin and sadness. We discover it in amazing sadness one day. We can't forget Bill Gates even this week. Marriage falling apart, no doubt this is something that has been in the works for many, many years. In fact, as you read the articles, you find out that he was not just a philanthropist, he was a philanderer, spending vacations with other women throughout his marriage. 
seemingly perfect, seemingly beautiful. There, there's, there's one of their many houses, a 60,000-square-foot house right on their lake. Looks so beautiful. They seem so nice and wonderful. Everything seems so perfect. And yet they're living for themselves, and the end is the same as anybody's end who lives for themselves. Brokenness, sadness, discontentment, weakness. And you can look back through history. There's a, a trail of blood even back through history as, as people who live for themselves ended up dying, perhaps even taking their own lives. They denied themselves nothing. They pursued themselves and their wealth and their power and their prestige above all else. And their lives are full of sadness and abuse and destruction. And the media exalts these selfish people as though they're the the heroes of society, of their paragons of wisdom, yet they are fools. They've not made this one simple investment. And this is what Jesus is saying. He said, just look at the obvious picture. And they would have known back then. There are people who live for themselves, and their lives are actually miserable. People who don't live themselves are the opposite. They find contentment. A few years ago, I watched a part of an interview with Meg Ryan. I always thought of her as being sort of a squeaky clean rom-com star. But evidently, since her divorce, she's delved in some pretty raunchy stuff. What I saw in this interview was a woman who was utterly confused about any sense of propriety, any sense of morality, even had lost sense of herself. She was mentally disturbed, I believe. Who was it a few years ago? I think it was Charlie Sheen. It just suddenly is visible. This guy has been living for himself, and the more he lived for himself, the more raunchy and terrible and miserable his life became. This is just common sense. This is conventional wisdom. You, you look at life, people who live for themselves actually lose their lives. People who seek to, to build up their lives, and they li live for money and self-adulation and fame, they end up losing their lives. He's just is making a common sense, common sense observation. This is a universal truth across all eras and all cultures. Those who seek to fill their lives with pleasure, self-gratification, hedonism, they are the ones who actually lose their lives. If there's fleeting joy, of course. They, how, how fun would it be to own your own jet? How nice would it be to have a trampoline room in your house? I was in, I was in Bill Gates' house. They found a, a room that's a, full of trampolines. How cool would it be? But those joys are so fleeting. They're momentary. The things that matter in life are, are miserable. The things that, that truly bring joy are gone because of your pursuit of yourself. Again, Jesus is going to get to the idea of separation from God and judgment here in a moment. I think he's just making just a, a, a parabolic statement. Here's, here's a parable for you. Here's a, here's a picture. We all know this to be true. Those who live for themselves, those who seek to save their lives, end up losing it. Now, the second part of the phrase is that those who seek to lose their lives for the sake of Christ, save it. They're the ones who find life. Those who live selfless, selfless lives find fulfillment. Common sense, again, conventional wisdom tells us those who live not for their sake, not for their money, not seeking their own self, but those who live for others to be serving others and blessing others, those are the people who find joy and contentment and satisfaction. What you can see here is really three levels of selflessness. The first level is just that basic life principle. I think Jesus is giving us that proverb, that basic life principle. It really applies across the world, even among unbelievers, if they seek to have a joyous life instead of 
aiming at themselves and trying to prop themselves up and seek joy and pleasure, if they live for others, they will find more joy than anybody who has money can find. Those who lose their lives for others, if they give their lives to bless and benefit others, they are the ones who find life. But Jesus takes it to the next level. He says, those who lose their lives for what? My sake. So now Jesus takes conventional wisdom and He applies it to the truth of Christianity. There's there's something greater than to live for someone else. It's to live for Jesus Christ. And how often is true we find people who who are very selfless and they do find an amount of contentment and joy and satisfaction in life, uh, but in the end, if you really press them, they're doing it for themselves. Whereas if you live and bless others for the sake of Jesus, you find even greater joy. And Jesus takes this conventional wisdom, He applies it to a relationship with Christ. Those who give their lives, those who lose their lives, who give themselves for the sake of honor and glorifying Christ, they are the ones who really find life. True joy, real contentment is giving your life for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. But there's one level even greater than that, isn't there? Because the word there is lose, isn't it? So it's a constant willingness to die. It's a willingness to die not only for the sake of others, but for the sake of Jesus Christ. The ultimate joy, the ultimate contentment, ladies and gentlemen, is found in martyrdom. That's where we find our greatest joy. Now, most of us will not have the opportunity to be martyred, but with that command, take up your cross, we, we cherish in our hearts this idea of I am losing my life and I am sitting at the ready to even die for the sake of Jesus Christ and the glory of His name. And so Jesus is, is giving us an, an argument from the lesser to the greater. You, you look at this, you just observe the world. People who live for themselves, they end up being discontent and sad. Those who give themselves and live selflessness, they find joy. In fact, those who live for Jesus Christ, for me, and follow me, those are the ones who ultimately find the greatest joy and the greatest life. So if you're not a believer, I would just look you straight in the eye and say, this makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus is pointing us to a a very common sense, conventional wisdom. He's saying, listen, if you live for yourself, life is going to be miserable. And in the end, you will lose your life eternally. But if you give yourself, not just for the sake of others, but for the glory of Christ, you will find ultimate and eternal life. So that's the first motivation, conventional wisdom. You just observe the world, and it makes sense. And Jesus points to this. The second motivation, the second purpose I would give you is found in the very next verse. It's very simple. I don't think it takes a lot of time to uh, dissect. Verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? Why deny yourself? Why take up your cross and follow Jesus? Why become a true disciple? Because of, number two, the value of your soul. The value of your soul. The word soul there is a reference to the eternal part of you. The Bible teaches that man is made up of two parts. By the way, not three. Freud is the one that introduced this third idea of the psyche. The Bible teaches that man is made up of two parts body and soul, or body and spirit, or sometimes it's even described as heart. It's the eternal part 
of the human, body and soul, body and spirit. And Jesus asked the question, and the question is a a question about the value of your soul, the value of where your soul will spend eternity. This is pretty easy to understand. Your infinite soul is not worth selling for the whole world. If, If you could gain the whole world but lose your soul, it still wouldn't be worth it. A fool would give up his soul for wealth on earth. You're a fool to swap 70 or 80 years of of prosperity and temporal pleasure in exchange for an eternity away from God in damnation. It's not worth it. Your soul, your eternity is so much more valuable than a few years of pleasure. Don't do it, Jesus is saying. Don't do it. Your soul is worth more than temporal pleasure. Don't surrender your eternity, eternity to gain some money or some short-lived pleasure. And the reverse, reverse is true. You should give up your temporal gains. You should give up whatever it takes to give up. You should give up your, your temporal, fading, vaporous, momentary life and all that you have in it in order to serve Christ. Give it all to Christ and thus secure your place in eternity. Some of you are familiar with the words of Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was a missionary who went down to uh, preach the gospel to a very remote tribe in South America, Alca tribe. Elliot said, this is before he was martyred actually, Elliot said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Again, if you look, if I could look you right in the eyes and call you to salvation and beg you to salvation, I would say, don't be a fool. You cannot gain enough wealth on earth to balance the, to to change the balance in terms of eternity. Eternity will always, your soul will always outweigh whatever you can gain in this earth. So give it all up for the sake of Christ. You say, John, what is the value of my soul? Well, look to the cross. Jesus was willing to go to the cross to save souls for the glory of God. He, he was willing to sacrifice his own life for your soul. Why don't you look to that, believe in that, and follow Christ and give up this life so that you can follow him? Let me tell you, not only are you going to find the greatest joy in life, you will find your greatest joy throughout eternity. The final reason, and we'll sort of park here for the rest of the time, the final reason Jesus offers to become his disciple, the third part of the motivation is found in the final verses of chapter 16. This is where it gets a lot more serious. Why become a disciple of Jesus? Why surrender all? Because of, number three, the coming judgment. The coming judgment. Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Really, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, it's pretty obvious here, the word repay, when it says he will repay each person according to what he has done. When it says Jesus will repay each person according to what he's done, it's done in respect to Christ or done in respect to the truth that he's presenting right here. He's not sort of changing tracks and saying, oh, you know, you won't find salvation in Christ, you'll find salvation in your good deeds. He's not talking about good deeds. He's talking about done in respect to the gospel that he's presenting right here. He is presenting a message, and the message is, believe the truth of Christ. That's the profession of Peter. Profess the truth of Christ, but also follow Christ. 
follow me, deny yourself. And God will, through Christ, judge you in the end what you do in respect to these truths. As Peter confessed Christ is Son of God, and following that profession, there has this total surrender, denying yourself, taking up your cross, following Jesus. What have you done in respect to that truth? This is the gospel. This is what it is to be a Christian. And that's the standard by which we will all be judged in the end. Again, Jesus doesn't get into the details of our righteousness and pursuing Christ and the result of self-denial and the rewards uh, from which we will lay at the feet of Jesus in worship. So the best way for all of us to think of this is that in the, in the end, Jesus is going to judge every single person according to what he's done in regard to the gospel, in regard to the truth of his son and the following of his son. I, I wrote down some categories of people I think would most likely, there are probably more categories than this, but I think there's some categories that I think people who come to church, who we watch online, those of us in this room would fall into maybe one of these three categories. Again, there may be other categories you might could think of, but I think people who come to church. There are those who maybe in secret, maybe not telling their spouse or telling anybody around them, but those, the first category are those who are deniers. These are those who, in the end, deny Christ. They just doubt the whole idea, the truth of Christ. They, they look at all this. That maybe even they say, well, it makes sense, but I just don't believe. I ran into a guy this weekend that used to be a part of our church. There was a time in the life of our church when we would all point to him as sort of the, the, the picture of faithfulness and the picture of godliness. He was deeply involved in the church and Everyone thought of him as being a very spiritual man, and I noticed as time went on, he just sort of got less and less and less involved in church and less interested, and it finally got to that point, and this happens every single year. It got to that point where I had to start writing him letters and make phone calls. Hey, are you still around? Are you still interested? We, the pastors, are responsible for your soul. We want to answer to God. What's going on? I never heard any responses from him, and he never responded. So finally, we had to do what we have to do, sadly, every year, and that is remove him from the church. I saw him and I found out he doesn't even profess Christ anymore and he said all along he never really professed Christ, but I looked at him and he looked haggard, tired, sad, and joyless. Perhaps some of you are living out that story, his story right now. Everyone around you thinks you're a Christian. Everyone around you believes you're a true Christian, but down deep inside you're a denier. You're a denier. We all know the destination of those who deny Christ. And Jesus has mentioned this over and over again, the separation, and deniers will be cast into eternal torment, having given bodies that will last forever, but they're not eternal glorified bodies. They, were, they are bodies that will go on forever in punishment, bodies of damnation. And Jesus has talked about it over and over. This is a place they'll be sent to a place a forever torture, and it's a place that they will never repent. They'll, they'll never finally say, okay, I give, I believe in Jesus. No, they will continue to, to deny Christ and curse God and continue to be punished. There will not be another chance once you get there. This is a place, like I, like I said, of forever torture. It's a place of infinite screaming 
sobbing, grinding of teeth. That is a judgment and sentence that God will hand down to all those who deny Christ if they never repent. So that's one category. A second category are those who are believers but not followers. And I think this is the most dangerous category, don't you? Oh, you believe. You profess Christ. You have your name on the church roll. You do things from time to time. Maybe you can look back and there was a time that you were baptized. You have some sort of experience, some sort of moment, but you're definitely not a follower. Upon any kind of good inspection of your life, you're definitely not a follower of Jesus. You're not devoted to Jesus. You don't sacrifice anything for Him. What little you do is not a sacrifice. Your life is anything but a life of surrender, anything but self-denial. You live for yourself. You may even be able to produce some veneer qualities of a Christian that fool people, but you know down deep inside that you're not a true believer. And if anyone were to do any kind of serious inspection on your life, it would be evident. It would be evident in your private sin. It would be evident in your goals in life that you are not living for Christ. You're living for yourself. It's how you spend your money, how you spend your time. You may believe in Jesus. You may profess the truths that Peter professed. But you don't give anything to sacrifice to Jesus. The saddest part is that your destiny is exactly the same as the deniers, the same as Judas, all the others, other haters of Christ. You will go to hell professing Christ, but because you never were His disciple, you never truly repented, your destiny will be the same place of eternal torment and torture as every atheist who's ever lived. But there is hope, isn't there? There's one final category. These are people who are believers and true followers. These are people who are truly repentant. This is what Jesus is, is preaching to His disciples about. He's, he's calling them to be professors, but also believers and followers of Jesus. Follow me. They are truly repentant. They've surrendered everything and, and anything they do, even, even when they're and they're vacating, even when they're, they're recreating, even when they're purchasing something, all of it is geared toward the glory of Christ. It's a life lived in total surrender to and for the glory of Jesus Christ. And the question is, is that last category you? If it is, you can go home with a confidence and assurance that you will spend eternity with Christ. I tell you, looking at this as convicting. It should be convicting even for Christians. It should convict us of our sin. It should convict us of our private sins. It should convict us of the way we spend our money and time and energy and efforts. All of us have some level of hypocrisy, don't we? If we're honest with ourselves. We all are imperfect. But God uses passages like this to call us back to our true love, Jesus Christ. Uh, before I close, I do want to take a, a closer peek at the fuller account. As you know, when you read these four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the beginning of Acts, uh, beginning of the New Testament, what you find is, is oftentimes what you find is a same account uh, or a different account of the same thing. So maybe some different words there, a little bit different angle there, different emphasis. In Mark 8, at the end of Mark 8, we have Mark's record, probably through the testimony of Peter, Mark's record 
of Jesus' words in this moment, and there we find an additional description of what Jesus says there. God will pay each man according to what is done. And in that moment, Mark tells us Jesus also said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, there's a deeper truth here. We read that word ashamed and we kind of think of the word embarrassed and we think, you know, We shouldn't be embarrassed about Jesus, but there's something much deeper. There's a a deeper uh, flow of doctrine here. Jesus is not just saying, hey, don't be embarrassed about being a Christian. And let's be quite honest. We live in a country that, even though it's becoming less and less Christian, we still live in a country that, to say you're a Christian, that's no skin off your back. It doesn't take a lot of boldness to say you're a Christian. I mean, perhaps in some context, maybe in high school or junior high, it's, it's a little bit embarrassing sometimes, but... But that's not what's going on here. It's not talking about not being embarrassed. embarrassed. It includes that, but it's not talking about being embarrassed about Jesus. There's something bigger going on here. And if you follow the train of thought just throughout the Bible about this idea of shame and being ashamed, it's much more than simply being not embarrassed or embarrassed about Jesus. The, The people who were listening to Jesus, the disciples namely, would have been students of the Old Testament, at least somewhat students of the Old Testament. And Jesus used a word that they would have been familiar with. This word of shame would have been something they would have been familiar with. Isaiah 57, 8, God says to the people of Israel, for deserting me, you have uncovered your bed, you have gone up to it, you have made, made it wide, you have made a covenant for yourself with them, meaning foreign gods. You have loved their bed. In this passage, God is, is talking about the people of Israel as though they are his bride and they are adulterating this marriage relationship. I'm not talking about actual physical sexual betrayal, uh, betrayal, that is. That may have been involved, but he's talking about, using that marriage picture, he's talking about bringing shame on the marriage. They have deserted him, and he says, you played the shameful part of the adulteress. Ezekiel 16, 32 to 33 says, adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband, men giving gifts to all prostitutes, you gave her gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come from every side with your whorings. Again, same analogy, you're bringing shame into the marriage by pursuing these other gods. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying people who are not single-minded people who, are, who think that they can profess Christ and love Christ but also pursue other interests and other gods have it all wrong. They brought shame upon this union. They brought shame upon this covenant. In fact, in the Old Testament, what comes to mind is Hosea, the whole book of Hosea. It's a story of this kind of shame. You've brought shame upon this marriage. This helps us understand Jesus' words, ashamed here. This is not just about being embarrassed. This is about inviting all kinds of other selfish interests and all kinds of other pursuits and all kinds of other gods into the relationship you have with Christ. The Pharisees would not have been embarrassed about the name of God, but they pursued all kinds of other gods. They refused to be faithful 
They're ashamed of God in that they have shamefully given their time, their energy, their efforts, their worship to other things. They've worshiped money. They've worshiped power. They've worshiped their own retirement. They've worshiped these things to their shame. And when you live life like that, Jesus is saying, in Mark's fuller account, Jesus is saying that is an evidence that you are ashamed. This is shame you've brought into this covenant. And if you live a life like that, guess what? God will be shamed of you. He will have none of it. The people who value their lives more than they value Christ, they value money and power and things and sex more than they value Jesus Christ, in the end they will be ashamed eternally. They'll forfeit their soul. God will say to them, even if they profess Christ, God will say to them on that day, depart from me. I never knew you. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my whole life's goal to keep you from having to hear those words. I don't want you to stand before God and be ashamed on that day. And it begins now. The beauty, the glory is if you believe in Jesus Christ and profess Him, not just with your lips and your mind, but with your life following after Christ, you will see the Son of Man. You will see Jesus exalted. You know, just so you know, if you are not a believer in that judgment day, you will not see heaven. There's not this story. We don't, this is sort of in the comic books, far side, that you'll go up to heaven and talk to God. No, you will be instantly judged. You won't see God. But if you are a believer, if you did follow Christ, if you are unashamed and did not introduce shame into this covenant marriage, you will see God. See, you'll see Christ in His exalted kingdom. What we find out in that next chapter, and this is what Jesus alludes to in the last verse of Matthew 16 there, in that next chapter, Jesus shows three of His disciples His glory, His, his unveiled glory uh, in His kingdom. They get a little preview of that vision, right? But until then, we all have to wait. Folks, we'll see that exalted Christ one day. We'll bow at His feet and worship Him. And that's my whole goal for you and for me, that one day we'll see our, Jesus, our Christ, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for what You've given us in Your truth. We thank You for the opportunity to study again as hard words from Jesus, tough truths, but Lord, we want to follow them because... There's nothing in this life we wouldn't give up to glorify your Son, Jesus Christ. So help us do this. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who maybe believes in Jesus in their minds, that, Lord, they would take this to heart and they would repent. They would deny themselves and follow after you. I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. I pray that even as I pray these words to you, Lord, they would call out to you in repentance and in faith. Lord, all of us who are believers are reminded of our, the residue of our old self, the battle we fight against that old man who wants us to live for ourselves and lies to us that life is better lived in sin. 
Lord, we re-up, we reaffirm our desire to worship you and you only. Help us do this in everything that we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.